You are listening to the No Formula Podcast, episode number 32. Mary Grothy is the founder of SalesBQ, an outsourced revenue operations firm. Serving highly targeted B2B companies, SalesBQ helped double and even triple revenue for their clients. But in this episode, we get to know more about the woman who is driving remarkable results, Mary Grothy. Although she has sold millions in revenue and broke records in sales, Mary discusses some setbacks in her journey. For example, how she needed to learn how to build a profitable business model, how she wasn't picking the best clients, how she didn't have a solid recruitment process, and how shiny object syndrome led to enormous debt. Mary tells us about every single lesson and how she overcame each one. Connect with Mary Grothy on LinkedIn. In the meantime, continue listening to learn more about how Mary started in an admin role at just $13 an hour, to breaking sales records at a Fortune 1000 company, to thriving as a CEO. The No Formula Podcast offers a glimpse into the lives of real entrepreneurs who possess a variety of experiences and backgrounds. Through raw conversations, learn about their passions, journeys, setbacks, and milestones. Join host Laura L. Bernhardt as she confirms that there is, in fact, no formula to success. Get inspired and stay motivated throughout your entire journey. Subscribe today. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. So I kind of just want to jump right into it. How did you start your professional career? I stumbled upon a really cool opportunity with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. I was 22 years old. I had just come off working dozens of part-time jobs and didn't have a college degree, wasn't really sure what to do with my life. I saw an ad for an administrative assistant position and I interviewed, got the job, and I got to support a mid-market sales team of eight people and happened to work for the number one sales manager in the country. I did the admin role for two years. Working underneath that man was such a blessing in my life because I felt like I got an MBA in sales and I had never even sold anything, but I did two years as a sales admin. I loved taking a couple Dale Carnegie courses and listened to Brian Tracy's Psychology of Selling And then at that point, I earned an opportunity to get on the sales team, and I became the number one rep in 30 days. I maintained that title for the two years that I sold, and at that point, I got an opportunity with one of my then clients who wanted me to come on as a VP of sales and marketing and wanted me to take over the revenue generating function. They were very small but it was an awesome opportunity. I went on, was able to help quadruple their revenue in seven months. And I did that through a series of processes of rebuilding their infrastructure and then building out a great team and then taking it back out to market. But I fell in love with that work and decided that I was going to do that for a living. So I started my first company and worked through that for three years. I know we're going to get into the details of this, Mm-hmm. But I had three years helping business owners and helping them take them to market and then get them to profit. I ended up making some not so great business decisions, which <laughs> left me very hungry and starving entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I met my now husband 
back in 2013. And I just decided that right before we got married, I should go back into the workforce. And I went back to the payroll and HR company, had three awesome years selling millions in revenue. And then I had the courage to step back out into entrepreneurship and start a second company. This time a lot wiser and it has been an incredible two and a half years. Yeah, that's awesome. So yes, I definitely want to go into more detail on all the parts of your story. And first, I, I, I actually want to ask you about, you said that you were um, the assistant of the top sales representative? It's actually the number one sales team in the country. Oh, and <laughs> I supported a mid-market sales team of eight people and the sales managers. Those were my first two years. Mm-hmm. And I got to help them in the field and with their clients, got to help them with regular salespeople type activities. But then also in supporting my manager, I really felt like I got to see under the hood of yeah. how to build sales infrastructure and work with the talent and really produce great results. So it was an amazing two years. Mm-hmm. And then you got promoted to actually becoming a sales rep and you did, you did pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My quota the first year was 150,000 in revenue and Mm -hmm. I sold 758,000, which that year on the rankings was more than number two and three combined on the rankings. (laughs) I broke a lot of records and some really fun ones like, discounting percentage. I had the lowest discounting percentage in the country. Mm-hmm. I had a very high average revenue per sale and a short sales cycle, high close rate, really meaningful sales metrics. Quite quite a fun two years. And I think what's even more impressive, impressive on top of all this is that it was during the recession, right? Yep. My first two sales years, 2008 <laughs> and 2009. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that somebody can have those types of results in two down years, but I didn't know any different. I had never sold anything. So, okay. Well, first of all, that's amazing. So as soon as the recession ends, things could start going back to normal. Did you actually notice a difference between selling during the recession and then selling afterwards? Oh, very much so. Selling during the recession I know that I worked really, really hard. I had to be very connected with all the different buyers on the team. When I would do a mid-market sale, I would often sell to three, four, or five people on the, what I would call the buying team, if you will. Mm -hmm. And when I would work with that many decision makers or buyers, influencers, I had to make sure that I was granular focused on everyone's specific needs. What my product or service that I was selling, what problems did it solve? for each of those people, not as a whole for the company. I also had to be extremely strategic when discussing financial investments because it's back then every penny made a difference in the company. Whereas what I saw after the recession, people weren't getting as granular into pricing and quotes and the dollars and cents. I could see people making decisions easier when it came to investments. But back then I had to get super creative. And one of the great assets in my sales skills that came out of that time was being able to uncover what I call quantifiable ROI. Meaning not only can you identify the problem, the pains and problems that you're solving, but attach a dollar amount to those. I was selling payroll outsourcing and HR outsourcing. And at the time in a down economy, the way to position it with selling to a financial executive like a CFO was to help understand, they would help educate me on where their expenses were for the entire 
payroll and HR department. So companies that did payroll and HR processing in-house had a very large staff. They also had printer costs and paper and ink and shipping and everything that goes into doing payroll yourself. And so I would be able to help that CFO go through, uh, in some instances, what looked like a financial pro forma and look projected out what the costs were. And then I could take the costs and identify the ones that could be replaced with my solution. And then also see in headcount if we were able to provide a reduction in staff for them and potentially repurpose people, have them work in other areas of the business. But it was very laser focused on financial priorities. And in 2008, 2009, that's how I learned how to sell. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get a sale without having those very big, difficult, upfront budget conversations. And I know that that's a huge weakness with a lot of salespeople. In fact, I've had the opportunity to sit and shadow a lot of sales meetings with the work that we're doing today. Mm -hmm. And uh, that budget question it's like one of the scariest questions for people to ask. And for me, I don't get it. I'm like, I grew up <laughs> having in sales, having to ask this question as part of a natural, casual conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that that has worked to my advantage through the rest of my sales career. Yeah. And it's proven so too. And I kind of just want to dig a little deeper in what you said at the beginning was you actually had to get you had to understand the needs of each person in the buyer's team, right? So you mentioned yes. the CFO, but did you go through that process with, with each person on the team? Yes, in the language that mattered to them. Mm -hmm. And the person who was processing payroll or the payroll functionary didn't really care about the dollars and cents of the department, but they cared about their day in the life and how their role was impacted and how their life could be made better. And it took getting their specific buying criteria and decision criteria, which was very different than the CFO. And the HR person had a different set of criteria. Mm -hmm. A finance functionary had a different set of criteria. The CEO had a different set of criteria just because they're both executives. The CEO and CFO have different priorities. They think differently. Typically, they speak in a different language. Mm -hmm. And it's being able to uncover what's important to them. What are their specific problems? What does your product or service need to do in order to make their lives better, which will get them to lean towards making that buying decision? But yes, in a mid-market sales specifically, when you have multiple people, I I've presented to groups. I have, gosh, I walked in to a sales presentation once. And I was doing a demo. I had done the pre-qualification over the phone and I came mm -hmm. in for the demo step in the room, had 20 people sitting in there <laughs> and I was scared to death and I'm booting up my computer and plugging it into the projector and I'm looking at this room. I felt like I was do like on stage, right? And doing this yeah. full presentation. I didn't even know who was sitting in the room. I thought, I don't, I don't know their personalities. I don't know their function of the business. I don't know the pieces and components they're gonna care about. And so I actually stalled starting my demo and I had everybody go around the room and I gave them a 60 to 90 second window to do an introduction so that I could understand who they were, their name, their title, their role, their function, and really their expectations. Why are you here? What are you looking at getting out of this? What's one question that you know you can't leave today if I don't answer for you? Because I had to clue in and connect 
with what they actually wanted. It would have been easy as a salesperson to just walk in and do this big dog and pony show and have this beautiful presentation, Mm -hmm. but then I wouldn't be connecting with them individually. And I know that's how you lose sales. And so I took part of that precious presentation time in order to know my audience before I ever told them, I think it's a blast for me to try to pitch or present something to somebody when you don't even know what you're pitching or presenting. What problem are you solving? Why would they even care about it? How are you adjusting what you're presenting to align specifically to their needs? I think that's a big miss with a lot of salespeople. I I just can't believe that you did that with 20 people. I hope you had like a notepad. Oh, I always do. I have it right now with me in case (laughs) you say something that I need to write down to come back to. I'm doing the same thing. (laughs) I can't imagine doing that for 20 people well even just for like five or six I feel like that's such a big process and then having to like follow up with them every time with probably different collateral I'm assuming that was part of the process as well it is and there are a lot of traps in the sales process sometimes if you can get very granular with the different types of of personalities that your buyers have some care about collateral and follow Mm -hmm. up and follow through more than others We love teaching DISC, D-I-S-C, and D is the dominant driver. I is the influencer. That's your expressive person like me likes to talk a lot. (laughs) Then you have your S, which is a steady person, usually a very solid team player, doesn't really love change, goes along to get along. And then your C is your conscientious person or the cautious thinker, and they're super analytical When you have different types of personalities, they care about different things. They speak different languages. It's like the five love languages, if you've ever heard that, Mm -hmm, where people feel receive love in five specific ways. Well, buyers (laughs) receive, I guess, the the sales love in different (laughs) ways based on their personalities. And they deem your level of credibility as a salesperson differently based on how they receive and process information. And so not only is it just understanding their role, their title, their day in the life and their specific criteria, but it's really cluing into who they are as people and how they buy. And so for me, the people that needed follow through were going to be my analyticals. Typically Mm -hmm. my analyticals are the C they needed to see data statistics. They wanted to talk to references. They wanted to see proof of concept. They wanted a sandbox version. They could play in on the technology. There were the questions they would ask. You could tell this is a C I'm dealing with a C. <laughs> the S is really looking at reassurance because they don't like pulling the trigger making decisions and they want the team to be happy. So they're really looking for inclusion and everyone else's opinions and feedback. And you can identify an S all day long if you're in a group setting and you ask that person what they think. An S might look around and say, well, I like it, but it really depends on what everyone else thinks. John, Sarah, (laughs) Susan, what do you all think? I mean, that's going to be your S. And then Mm -hmm. the D is probably not going to be asking you for a lot of follow-up other than a price quote and implementation Um, specifics. How much of my team's time is this going to take? How long does it take you to get up and running? Mm -hmm. And what are the dollars and cents and how is this going to improve my bottom line? They're so results focused. So yes, there is a step when you have a mid-market sale and sure there's 20 people in that room. I had a lot of department heads that were weighing in on how the technology was going to impact their specific department, but they weren't necessarily an economic buyer or one with executive authority. So getting their criteria in that situation was good, but there were only a handful that I needed to follow up with after that presentation. Okay, that makes sense. And because you already have this kind of quick way of understanding 
which person has which personality, it's probably easier to to really kind of address their needs. Yes. And I'm so thankful I had a sales manager, not the one I directly reported to, but one in my office mm-hmm. that was observing, I can't remember how, how it all came about. It was so long ago, but he had observed something and he says, I'm going to take you out to lunch and I'm going to teach you about disc. I'm like, what is that? (laughs) And we went out, we got pizza and he grabbed a napkin and he drew it on a napkin and he taught me all of this. And he told me that he was fearful that I was going to alienate half the people I was selling to because younger in my career, I was such a high eye, super expressive, talked really fast. I still do that but I cared a lot about what people thought about me in relationships and wanted to be warm and fuzzy and share stories. And I was all about talking and communication and I could talk people's ear off. Well, D's and C's, they do not like that. They don't resonate (laughs) with that style. And he shared with me, I'm afraid that you're going to lose more business than you need to. I'm like, what are you talking about, Casey? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. It helped me see that not everybody is going to like my natural style. And he worked with me during that lunch and helped me understand if I just pivot and adapt slightly, I can actually have much greater sales outcomes if I change the way that I'm selling to adapt to my specific audience. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great advice. I'm, I'm learning as you're, you're telling me all these things. So it's great. (laughs) And I just want to get back to your story. Um, So you, you're doing very well at this company and, and then you, you leave to start your own your own company called Butterfly Creative. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. I worked for the payroll company for five years. And then for seven months after that, I worked for one of my clients called Grow. Mm -hmm. And that was my stepping stone into owning my own company. When I was at Grow, I went on as VP of sales and marketing, turned around the company in seven months, quadrupled revenue. They were only 125,000 in revenue when I started. And that work was exciting to me. I thought Mm -hmm. if I could do this again and again and again, how many companies are like this? They're 125,000 in revenue or 200,000 in revenue and they're just stuck and they don't know how to get to that path to scale. And so I started Butterfly Creative with the mission that I wanted to repeat that success. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I get to, (laughs) such a blessing. (laughs) I had three years. And I'm running Butterfly Creative. And during those three years, I worked with 36 business owners. Some of them were startup phase. Others were operating for some time and just couldn't get past that 100, 200,000 in revenue hurdle. Mm -hmm. And it was remarkable work. So I followed a seven-step process and helped rebuild these companies, took them back out to market. And I got them to profitability quickly. I, I called it from concept to profit in 60 days was my plan to mm-hmm. get them unstuck and, and really propel them back out into the market and then recruit to replace myself and get out of there. But that was three years of work. And of course, during that time, I was first time entrepreneur mm-hmm. and <laughs> had a big head coming off of a five-year uh, career with the payroll company where I had tremendous results. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, seven months with Grow, where I also had uh, tremendous success. And so going into Butterfly Creative, I think there were days when I would act a little bit too big for my britches and had a little bit of ego going into it. And I think that I missed a lot of really important steps along the way. And unfortunately, after three years, I was tired, exhausted, 
didn't have any money in the bank, didn't have a lot to show for the amazing work that I had done. Mm. What, how, but you just said that you worked with 36 companies. Everything seemed to work out. How did things start going south? I didn't know how to charge for my services. Mm. And I didn't know how to build profitability into my own business, which is shocking because that's what I did for my clients. And I was successful in doing it for my clients, but I struggled to do it for myself. And it's actually a common problem for a lot of business owners. You've heard the saying, the plumber's pipes always leak. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show what we're great at doing sometimes might be a blind spot in our own business. What happened was I wasn't charging enough, number one. And I truly didn't understand the concept of billable hours, meaning when I was pricing projects by the hour or flat fee project, I wasn't taking into consideration that it's not healthy to have 50 or 60 billable hours um, in a given week. And mm. because I was underpricing myself and working myself to the max, I wasn't always leaving in time to do other work. And Additionally, I didn't set very good, clear contracts with my clients, and I didn't enlist the help of an attorney to get a good MSA, a master services agreement, mm -hmm. or good contracts. And so I had a lot of clients that wanted to pay me in equity, or they wanted to pay me in future payments or performance-based payment on future results. I was so confident in ability to drive revenue that oftentimes I would say yes to those engagements. But I quickly learned that there are a hundred variables in a business I can't control when it's not my company. And what I mean by that is I can be confident in what I'm building from an infrastructure standpoint and taking them out to market to be successful, but I can't control the fact that the founders fight all the time. And I can disagree. I can't control the fact that an owner isn't good with their own money or they don't treat people ethically. And those are just some examples that I wasn't smart about on the front end. I didn't always pick the best clients to do work for. And all, when you add all of that up, I would go to scale, but I didn't have enough margin out of my hourly rate in order to have enough cash in the business outside of paying myself for my own bills in life to bring on a second team member or a third team member. So I started to grow by bringing on contractors to do part-time work and with a contractor, they're not an employee. You can't have them full time. Mm -hmm. You can't tell them when and where, and <laughs> you know, they're a contractor. They make their own decisions on those. And I didn't always have control and say over how projects were being worked on. And so there were, there were just a lot of lessons in the first three years, but there were a few, those are a few mistakes. I, I also had shiny object syndrome and I was taking on opportunities every time somebody said it was a good idea. And I didn't have the discernment to know when to say no. And every time something was brought to me, it was, oh, shiny object. Oh, shiny object. Oh, <laughs> sure. I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'll take that on. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to say no. I didn't want to let people down. And I was, I'm a very excitable person. So anytime something looked really great, I would say yes to it and take it on. Meanwhile, I would take all these things on, but there were more hours in the day. <laughs> so it just led yeah. to massive burnout. So yes, I did great work. My clients, they all grew revenue, all 36. I mean, it was tremendous to have 100% on the success results, but there were a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went in on the back end that a lot of people didn't see. Yeah. And okay, so 
It's a lot of questions. You mentioned you you didn't have a model to be profitable. So for anyone listening who might be in a similar situation, what is your advice to them on maybe a a model that they can follow? Sure. I learned very early on that many business owners confuse profitability with cash in the bank. Mm. Just because you have cash in the bank at the end of the month, your bank statement is not a pro forma. It's not financial modeling. It's just an indication of cash. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think one of the biggest learnings is to build a pro forma and to have financial modeling for multiple scenarios. The second item is hire a payroll company, spend 50 or $100 a month to have a payroll process for you every month. And why that's powerful is a lot of business owners, including myself, would, were the last to get paid. And we will spend money on marketing or advertising or on other projects or on technology or things that we deem necessary. And then there's not enough cash at the end of the month to pay us. This is extremely common. In fact, I'm part of a women's CEO group. And this has been a big conversation that every in our companies, many people make significantly more than some of the women CEOs in my group. And I was one of them, even on the second time around with the business. And we can talk about that later. But it's interesting to know if you just set yourself on the payment, pay yourself first and then build margins on everything. So know your numbers and know every dollar that comes in. If you can have a financial model and you're paying yourself first every month and you know what your expenses are. So what do you have to spend on overhead and then making sure that you're pricing your product and service to give you a margin that allows you to one, pay yourself out of it, right? And then it also gives you leftover cash every month. So another thing that a lot of business owners don't do that I didn't do was build a three to six month reserve. And that's really important to have a cash reserve. Look at what just happened in our world. We're in the mm-hmm. middle of a pandemic right now and companies that don't, that weren't sitting on six months of an emergency fund of cash, uh, some of them shut their doors within a week. The successful companies, right? Mm-hmm. Shutting their doors within a week because of what happened. And so you've got to have that financial reserve, but it takes time to build that up. So my, my first recommendation is know your numbers, build a pro forma, build out your profitability so that you can very clearly see revenue minus expenses yields a certain amount of money every month. One of the biggest exercises that I would walk through with my clients out of the gate, because I called it from concept to profit in 60 days, was taking a look at where is their money going today? What are their expenses? What can be trimmed? Are they not charging enough? And this is hilarious, right? Because I helped them do that, but I wasn't doing it for myself. (laughs) But helping them understand there's two ways to price your product or service. You can do it on a cost base. So, hey, these are my costs to provide the product or service. And then tacking on the desirable margin on top of that, great, here's my price to the market. Or you can look at a market pricing and say, hey, we're kind of a premium brand. We're like Louis Vuitton. We can actually get away charging a lot more because of our premium level of services. So you're pricing more so based on what the market would bear. But that's advice number one. Know your numbers, figure it out, pay yourself and get a model that actually produces the right numbers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And then you also mentioned that 
right off the bat, you didn't have like any attorneys or, or specific contracts. So do you recommend that those, you do those right away? Should, yes. should If I start a business, should I go get an attorney right away? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the second time around when I started Sales BQ, mm-hmm. it was one of the first things that I did. Okay. I had an operating agreement created. I had my employment agreements created for my employees. I had independent contractor agreements created. I had a services contract created <laughs> for my clients. And I made sure that I put in the protection that I needed because the first time around, I didn't have that. And so this was a way to protect me in business. So yes, hands down, get all of that put in place. It is worth it. You might spend three to $5,000. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Especially when things start going south. And, and then you also said the contracts with your customers weren't clear. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. is that something you can, you, sh- you should have or could have avoided? And if so, how? Yes, I could have. So here's one thing that I've learned for anybody that is building a consulting practice or services company mm-hmm. is that there's no guarantee of results. One of the biggest arguments that I will hear in terms of negotiation is when somebody's expectations are different than yours on the success metrics is they might try to hold that over your head as a consultant. And so here's an example, and I'm just making this up. This is not from a true story, but if you have on your website that you can get somebody two X or three X results of something, let's say you're putting that in marketing language, you bring a customer on board. I mean, they can, they can hold that over you and say, well, I became a customer because your advertising or marketing says this, and we didn't experience those results. So there's, it's really important in the contracts to have clear language on expectations of the entire process, meaning the scope of work in as granular of detail as you can, and then interpretations of the agreement and excluding guarantees of work or not guarantees of work, but guarantees of results, depending on the line of work that you're in. So there are variables outside of people's controls. So that was an example that I was sharing earlier is I had 36 clients back in the day. We grew all their revenue, but some results were much greater than others. And there were variables completely outside of my control. Like I had a husband and wife team on a client. I I can't handle the fact that one of them was talented and one of them was not. And I could never give performance coaching to the person who wasn't because they were protected because they were a spouse. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's really not anything I can do in that scenario. They didn't achieve the results that they were hoping to, but I really didn't have a leg to stand on in that conversation. So there will be things outside of your control, but having great language in your contracts will protect you from those types of scenarios. Looking back, do you think they were one of the customers that you should have probably not worked with? Yes. And now I'm sure you have a criteria on, on the types of clients that you want to work with. Exactly right. Round two of being a business owner, now with Sales BQ, we have been known to turn away business. People have to fit not just the demographic of who we serve, but the psychographic, which is more about those lifestyle characteristics and more of the emotional side of who they are as human beings and how they operate. It's very important to me and to my staff 
that we bring on great clients because the way that we are set up now at SalesBQ, we have 10 people on the team and each of my VPs, they each get three clients. So a third of their time is spent on each of their companies. And if they have a bad egg, it can spoil everything. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important that my team has quality of life, that we also bring on great clients that let us do our work. There are psychographics that are extremely important that we look for. And we make sure that we have the buy-in from our executive teams that we do work for as our clients. And just to make sure that we avoid bringing on clients like I had in the past. I think when I was a younger business owner the first time around, I loved when people said yes to me. And I think that's just part of the thrill of a sales, being a salesperson at heart mm-hmm. is it was great. They're like, yes, we want to work with you. But the reality hit when I transitioned from salesperson to CEO, when I was running my first company, Butterfly Creative, when I realized, oh crap, I have to actually do the work. <laughs> I used to be able to sell it and hand it off. And then now running a company, I'm like, oh, yikes, this is hard now because I sell it and I have to deliver on it. And then I realized how difficult it can be when you bring on a client that doesn't fit your ideal client profile. Yeah. If, if you can, can you tell us some of the psychographics you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So now underneath the sales BQ roof, I'm looking for a CEO that I'll give you some of the demographics. They need to be between about five and 20 million in revenue. I do prefer a B2B sale. Uh, we perform really well in tech SaaS sales as well as manufacturing and services. So we're, we're looking at those Uh, static facts. Then when it comes to the psychographic, I need the CEO to have tried to grow revenue on their own and have failed. Mm -hmm. I need the CEO to have come to the conclusion that they've already spent money. They have already spent time and energy. They have exhausted their internal options. They may have potentially worked with a third party and they haven't seen the results. I need them to be in that place emotionally So that when they look at me, they can hand over the keys to their revenue kingdom and say, we've tried everything and we can't make it happen. Go sales BQ, go make it happen, (laughs) grow our revenue. The CEO that is so thankful that we're there, the CEO that knows we can't do this on our own, their appreciation for my team is unbelievable. My team feels valued. The work that they're doing is valued. We really have a lot of room to do the work the way that we know it needs to be done in order to be successful. So that's one of the very important psychographics that we look for is they need to be in that emotional state. Another psychographic is they have to be a good person. And a lot of executives, CEOs, um, sometimes, you know, they come with ego and I'm okay with that. I'd say I've battled with ego a few times in my life as well. I'd like to think I'm a little bit uh, more humble now, but I, I know that that can happen naturally, but I can't have it get in the way of us doing great work. And so there are qualification questions that I'll ask as part of the discovery and sales process to really determine if they're going to allow us to do the work and and be a good fit. But I need them to be a good person. I like to see how they treat other members of their staff. I like to see how they speak about their staff in private versus how they speak to them in person. There are a lot of little things that I look for to make Mm -hmm. sure that they're a really great fit for us. But that might take a while. Like, how how can you tell right off the bat? Um, I yeah. Um, we're very fortunate that <laughs> well, a lot of our business comes through client referrals, and oh. we also get it through 
speaking engagements or podcasts like the one that we're doing here. So we get a lot of inbound leads through that. Um, we, we have not done a lot of outbound in our business. So a lot of times we will know the people that we're talking to or we've had some interaction with them or they are a referral. And what I like about that is I've never had a client refer me somebody that I didn't want to do business with. And so that has always been a way to give me great confidence. I would say that in some scenarios, it does take time, mm -hmm. but it's worth it because I would rather have a sales cycle be prolonged because I'm still trying to figure out if this is the right fit for us rather than rushing into a decision just to get the client to two weeks later, say we should have never brought on this client. And so I do think that it's worth it. It does take a little bit of extra time and due diligence. But I, I believe that, that you take that extra step, it's going to save you in the long run. Yeah, I think, I think that's very true. And what I also like about it is how narrow your target audience is. Like, you know exactly who you're going after. And I feel like a lot of small businesses or even entrepreneurs um, kind of stretch themselves too thin. So I'm wondering did it take time to get to this target audience or did you go into the business knowing that this is, these were the companies you were going to go after? Well, it's a combination of both. After Butterfly Creative, I knew that the companies I was doing work for were far too small. In between Butterfly Creative and SalesBQ, I went back to the payroll company and I had three very high um, earning years, uh, sold millions in revenue, and I realized at that point that my superhuman talent was really in building sales strategy and sales execution. And mm -hmm. the company that I worked for, I worked in a, in a very small division that didn't have, that wasn't backed by the marketing department. Therefore, we were responsible for building our entire funnel and doing the marketing and our own networking. I ran my own webinar series and attracted my own prospective clients to that. I did a speaker series out in the Denver community. I really took the top of funnel on myself and built my own revenue funnel. And during that time, I realized I'm working for a pretty large employer that doesn't even have these components. And how many salespeople really are out there to have the wherewithal drive and understanding of how to build this level of funnel or are they waiting on their organization to build it and so I had this premonition that a lot of really great sales talent was being wasted because they didn't have enough at-bats because the funnel wasn't full enough when I started SalesBQ I realized I want to go work with larger companies I've, I've had this three-year run um at Butterfly Creative, working with startups and entrepreneurs, sub 200,000 in revenue. And I thought, I'm going to go after larger companies. And I want to get to them in the middle space where they're big enough that they've proven they know what they're doing and they have a viable company. But they're not so big that they've developed too many bad habits, if you will. And mm -hmm. so that's where that sweet spot came from. So I felt very clear on who I wanted to serve. But in the very beginning, I wasn't quite sure what our product offering was. And as that has evolved, our ideal client has evolved. And when I first started, I went to three brave CEOs that I knew in our community. And I said, I'm thinking about starting a company where um, I'm going to build a team of fractional VPs of sales. That's how we started, where we will go on contract with CEOs like you that don't have a full-time VP of sales. We'll work with you maybe 15 hours a week. And we'll run your sales department and turn them into very successful salespeople. 
And how much would you pay for that? And what results would you need to see to justify that? So out of the gate, I did a beta test and I did that very quietly. I hadn't updated my LinkedIn profile. People didn't know where I was, what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I got the proof of concept and I got it just after a couple of months. And so on uh, January 4th of 2018 is when I went publicly to the market and said, Hey, I've, I've started back up my consulting firm. We're doing things differently now than when I was with Butterfly Creative. Here's who we're going after. And it really took that first year. I took on, again, business that probably wasn't the right business for the time, but I was still perfecting what our product and service offering even was. In fact, if you look at the quality of work and what we do now versus what we did just two and a half years ago, it's tremendous how much has advanced in what we're doing. And with that, we've become better um, understanding of who our ideal client is. Yeah, that's good. And did you, um, were you working while you started, while you did your beta, your beta test? I was not, but I was very fortunate. I closed one of the top 10 largest deals (laughs) in company history Mm -hmm. for the payroll company. And I had a six-figure commission check. And because of that, I was sitting pretty financially. And my husband and I don't have a lot of big expenses. And I was very fortunate to be able to spend a few months without any salary to make that happen. Okay, okay. That makes sense. And so just before we get into Sales BQ, what actually like pushed you to start another business? because I have a fire inside of me that I can't put out because (laughs) I was destined to do this because Mm -hmm. I can't work for other people because I, I mean, there's a million reasons. I, I can't, I had to stop denying who I was. I'm very, very good salesperson. That's been proven out time and time again. I've been very successful with everything that I've sold, but my heart wasn't fulfilled. My purpose didn't feel, I'm like, I wasn't put on this planet to sell things for other people. And I knew that I had talents far greater than what I was doing. And I could just feel it. I mean, there's this fire inside of me. And um, some days are hard. Some days are really hard as an owner. (laughs) And there are days when I say to my husband, you know, I'm going to just walk away from all of this. I'm going to sell the business. I'm going to go back to (laughs) being just a salesperson, it was so much easier back then. I made so much more money. I get, yeah. And he looks at me (laughs) with those (laughs) eyes of disbelief, like, okay, let me give you space to vent right now. Cause I know you don't mean the things that you're saying (laughs) and you will be miserable. And so he's such an incredible support, but yeah, there are tough days as an owner, but honestly, this is who I was destined to be. I mean, God created me with some pretty amazing talents. And I'm really fortunate for that. And now that I get to apply it and serve people around me, I mean, my life has never been greater. And how long were you working alone in sales BQ before you, you brought on some team members? So I had about two and a half months of beta testing. (laughs) And then as soon as we were officially a company and out in the market, I had a part-time contractor at the time. She's worked with me Um, since the early days with Butterfly Creative. And she was helping to support me on the marketing component. And so she was very, very, very part-time. So it was the two of us out of the gate. And so that was January. Mm -hmm. By April, I think we had brought on our 10th client, maybe ninth client. I have to look back at the books. But I was supporting all of them. And I thought I was going to die. It was so much work. And I... 
I was just working till I'd pass out on my laptop at night and roll over and wake up and start working immediately again. Um, there was no quality of life. So by that, I think April timeframe, I said, I have to get help, but I was not quite at my levels of profitability yet to justify a full-time hire. So mm-hmm. I went the contractor route and I had two contractors out of the gate that I was relying on to take some of the client load. And very quickly, I learned that the contractor model is, uh, is scary because <laughs> you can't, as I said earlier, you, you can't treat them like an employee. And, and I came from the world of payroll and HR, so I know the law very well. And I wanted to make sure that I was abiding by that and respecting the differentiation between the two. And I realized very quickly, this isn't the model that I'm going to grow my company. We had so many people knocking on our doors that wanted to work with us. I had a wait list for clients and I said, I've got to bite the bullet and do it. And I went ahead and just started hiring my contractors. And I was at the point by August or September in our first year, I think I had five employees and I had um, a couple of contractors on the side that were doing very, very part-time work and still following under the contractor status. And uh, it was It was great to have that. But then I started to learn how important hiring the right talent is. (laughs) That can be a whole other conversation, right? Yeah. Cue lesson number 37 (laughs) in my entrepreneurship journey. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. I waited too long to hire. I waited too long. I waited until we were bursting at the seams and I had more than enough money to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't have any bandwidth time or energy to train them appropriately, nor did I have enough time or energy or bandwidth to go about recruiting in a proper way. So I would have referrals come to me or friends or people that are already somewhat kind of new. I'm like, yeah, great. I need somebody to fill this role. Like, when can you start? And there was this whole vetting process that was completely missed. And then I didn't have time to train them. And so here they come working for my company, bless their hearts. I'm a terrible CEO in this moment because I just threw them into the role. I'm like, figure it out because I don't have time to train you. I've got a full client load. Everyone else has a full client load. We didn't have a physical office at the time. We were all virtual. And boy, was that a mistake. I think that I let people down. I think that I had some great talent on board that had I developed it, could have been a great employee. But unfortunately, I needed people that I could put in in that type of environment with very little training and I needed them to execute. So we had some early turnover and I finally started to get smart about this about a year and a half into running the company after I had made, I think probably my third worst hiring decision, not to the fault of the person that I placed. I did not follow a process. And I had a problem and I took the first available human being and said, (laughs) I will put you in this role. Help me. I solved the wrong problem or I solved the problem the wrong way Mm -hmm. and I paid for it. You know, and that's bad. It was expensive. My profitability in 2018 was, I'm sorry, 2019 was not good. Um, We ended up only finishing the year at about 16% net profit and Um, in a services business and what the work that we do, it should be closer to 25%, if not more. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very expensive year. There were a lot of lessons learned on talent. So since then, how we've corrected that one, we built infrastructure, we built training, (laughs) we built 
ways for people to get onboarded and not be thrown into the wolves. Um, we have leadership inside the company now and there's mentorship and we have ways of doing it. We also have a much stronger recruiting process and we also have what we call a bench. So right now I have somebody sitting on the bench that I'm very eager to bring on board as soon as our client load gets to that point. So I'm getting ahead of the hiring curve. I'm not waiting until we're bursting at the seams, which is hurting our quality of work, right? Or our quality of life for my employees. And now we're, we're just a lot smarter about it. But boy, was that a tough one to learn. That's a good concept, having someone like ready when you get to that point mm-hmm. and you need them. I, yeah. I've never heard of that before. That's, that's really, that's smart. And out of curiosity, do you guys still work remotely? Uh, we don't. So in January of 2019, we got an office and we love it. We have a beautiful training center in our office and we converted an old warehouse as two-story dirty old warehouse, stripped it out, painted it white, bright, beautiful. You can see the moving video of it on our website, mm-hmm. but, um, and then our team houses, we work out of that office. Of course, not right now because we're all mandated work from home, but Anyway, it is a, yeah, it's a great space. And also I wanted to ask, and you don't have to answer if you don't feel comfortable, but at what point did you guys start making profit? Um, from day one, we've always been profitable and I've always turned to profit. So for me, that has been rule number one, as we spoke about early mm-hmm. in this interview you have to build it in. So the first thing I did was I built in my salary. The first year, my salary, I think I only built it in at about 50 or 55,000. I can't quite remember what it was. And then in my second year in 2019, I gave myself a raise to 65,000 a year Mm -hmm. and was taking a lot of the money every month that was left over and reinvesting it in the company. And then when it made sense, I was taking a draw out of the company to make up for my other income. And the profitability for me, I learned that for the first business that I had with Butterfly Creative, after I shut the doors, I ended up um, to, to keep the doors open, by the way, because what we haven't talked about on this, and I'll keep it brief, is I had a few shiny object syndromes that were very expensive. I actually got called upon to start a kid's TV show that aired on Fox Saturday mornings here in Denver. Mm-hmm. And I was producing the entire show, writing the scripts. We were in the music studio. I produced a whole CD, a whole album. We did choreography for it. I was doing a whole TV show about kids in business, so kid and youth entrepreneurship. And um, I went, I went into significant debt getting that off the ground because I wasn't willing to sell the copyright to the show. And so I went a different route to have the production put on TV where I, I um, solicited and had my own advertisers for the show so I could keep my content. Anyway, it was um, very interesting. I ended up selling my house, cashing in my 401k, and I racked up my credit card debt. So with the first time um, I ran a company, when I closed those doors, I had about 30 or 40,000, eh, 30, probably thousand in debt. And I had sold my house and used all the equity that I had in there and my $50,000 401k was gone. So not only did I exhaust those, but on the other side of that, I still had 30k in debt. So one thing I have vowed to my husband, because he was with me during that time, we were just dating. And the first when we were engaged, our 10 months of engagement was a sprint for me to pay off that debt. And to also pay for a wedding and not bring any debt into our marriage. That was very important to me. 
And so now with SalesBQ, the promise that I made to him is that will not happen. And I will be profitable as an organization. We will not take on debt. And so we have made it a point that we have not. And so the way that I built the model and where I've waited to make decisions on expenditures and until it can be financed through the cash in the business. Okay. So when you said shiny object syndrome before, I thought you were taking on like bigger clients. I, I didn't realize it was a kid's show. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't have a, like the dial on Mary Grothy is zero <laughs> or a thousand. Like I don't operate in the middle. It is either nothing or super extreme. So yeah. Yeah. My shiny object was a whole production. Yeah, no, I can I can see that now. I just I just didn't realize that it was it was I just thought it was like bigger clients or too many clients. That is a fascinating story. <laughs> um okay, well, I'm glad you got out of that. And and it's great that you're profitable from day one. I I feel like yes, going back to what we were saying before is a lot of entrepreneurs just want to be in the hustle and they just want to be an entrepreneur and and they just look at the cash in their bank account and not necessarily their profit right just recapping what you said before and speaking of you know profit and helping customers and stuff like that I just want to let everyone know that in your two and a half years of sales BQ you served 50 companies in 20 states you grew their revenue over 185 percent year over year Five of them doubled in revenue and one client even tripled. Yes. That, <laughs> which is crazy. And so you were able to do this for every single one of your customers. When, when talking to them, what do you think is their number one mistake they make that prevents them from reaching their potential? Boy, number one, let me think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're good decision makers. And I mean that in a very loving way. Some people don't evaluate enough variables before they make a decision, or they're so paralyzed by their inability to make a decision that they don't make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that from an executive level, an ownership level, decision making is critical to the success of an organization. Some people are very impulsive buyers and they just say yes to everything. They move too fast. Some people, like I said, can be uh, paralyzed by the thought that they actually have to make a decision on something. Some people make uneducated decisions. And it's just, I think that if you had to boil it down to one thing is, how are you evaluating? Do you have an advisor? Do you have a coach? Do you have somebody that's giving you, this is my favorite thing, perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you have enough perspective in order to make a competent decision? I know that I'm a very driven person. I'm very fast paced, high urgency. Sometimes I make decisions too quickly. As you heard me explain earlier, one of the areas I would do that was with hiring people. I wasn't slowing down and evaluating enough variables to make good decisions. And so the decisions that I was making were just a band-aid and when I needed mm-hmm. surgery. And so it's, it's very important. I think that, and this is a general answer to your question. It's not yeah. one super tangible, like go do this right now and you'll fix all the problems in your business. But if you can hang with me while I'm being vague, look at the way you make decisions. In fact, I would encourage the listeners to go back in their company and look back the last three big decisions that you made. 
and evaluate yourself. Did you end up solving the right problem? Did you allocate the right investment to that? Did you choose the right solution or would you have done it differently? And if the answer was, I would have done that differently, highlight what you would have done different and then look at the trends in your decision-making. So like me, I make decisions too quickly <laughs> and I don't evaluate. That's how I was in the past. So now I built a new framework around how I make decisions with the company and I do consult others and I do get perspective and I can tell in a gut feeling, I know I can, I learned how to read myself because that's something that I found through doing this exercise, but I know how to read myself now when it's something I can confidently just say yes or no to versus something where I need to pull someone else in. But I really think that that is the, a pitfall of many business owners. Yeah. I think it's also like a characteristic that you have because a lot of people can admit that they're not good at something. Yeah. Right. And the fact that you're able to do that, I think, helps you a lot. Well, thank you. Because it took a lot of years for me to admit that. <laughs> you did it. You did it, Mary. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for being here with me today. And just before we wrap things up, I want to ask you one last question. The name of this podcast is the No Formula Podcast because there is no single formula to reaching your success. So if I were to ask you what your formula was, of reaching success, what would it be? Whew. The best thing that I can say is sell something people want. Mm -hmm. And unpacking that is I watched a lot of business owners fail because they believed in their product or service more than their buyer did. And they had tunnel vision. They weren't listening to the market. They thought they had a great idea. And so they're going broke trying to get people to buy their great idea, but people don't also align with that, that it's a great idea. Um, that you have to be willing to, to iterate and be agile and do what the market wants. The service offerings at SalesPQ have evolved tremendously. I could be successful right now with the old model that we had two and a half years ago, mm -hmm. but it would be harder to sell my profit margins on it would be lower. And I think our success rate would be much lower, but because we're willing to bend and shift and actually put forth something that the market actually wants. We listen to our clients and we listen to the market. We're constantly researching and listening to what our CEOs really need to be successful. And I think because we are committed to solving the problem and producing something that people are happy to spend money on and it's priced correctly and it, and it solves their problem and gets them their results. That's the formula. Don't be stuck on yourself and have too much pride in what your vision is of what you should be selling or your product and service really align with how you can serve the community, solve a problem and do something great for the people that you're selling a product or service to. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Well, thank you so much for being here with me, Mary and, uh, and stay safe during these times. Thank you. You too. Before ending this episode, I want to review the top three lessons I've taken from my conversation with Mary. First, you can build your skills as long as you are open to learning and growing. Mary tells us the story where at the beginning of her career, she was mentored by one of her coworkers, and that would not have led to anything if she wasn't open to learning and growing. Second, you can overcome challenges as long as you are willing to acknowledge them, reflect upon them, and then adapt your ways. 
there are so many times in Mary's story where this is proof that by doing this, you can be successful. Finally, don't let your pride stand in the way of getting another perspective to make a good decision. I think it is always a good idea to bounce ideas off other people and to go out of your way to get a different perspective. If this is the mistake that most CEOs make, according to Mary, then I think I'm going to do this more often. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.